And ladies and gentlemen, if you believe that we must be fierce and relentless and terminate terrorism, then you are a Republican. Welcome to Apocalypse Now, a journey into the heart of darkness. My name is Dave, and this is my brother Aaron, and we're here to give you our totally 100% unqualified views on all things pop culture. From movies to music to news, nothing is off limits for us to blindly comment on that's happening in the real world. This week on Apocalypse Now, we're going to go over our summer movie wrap-up, discuss the upcoming Robert Rodriguez film Machete, and go in-depth on the AMC TV show Mad Men. To start off this week's episode, we're going to do our summer movie wrap-up, which basically will go down as the summer movie season that wasn't. Really, when it comes down to it, there weren't a whole lot of memorable movies that came out this summer. The first movie that I really went to see that was part of the summer movie season was Iron Man 2. And while it wasn't a bad movie per se, it also wasn't terribly memorable. And definitely wasn't nearly as good as the original Iron Man movie from two summers ago. Further, I saw the Clash of Titans remake, and that was god-awful. We discussed that a few episodes ago. So On that should, classic podcast episode? Yeah, you should be pretty familiar with what our feelings are, but in case you didn't hear that episode yet, it was uh, a very, very, very subpar movie in which Sam Worthington's cardboard acting didn't really come across, and it was added to uh, post-production 3D to try to probably garner a little bit more uh, talk and momentum going into the season. Well, I think this was kind of like, you hit the nail on the head. This was the summer of the 3D action film, but... None of the films had the story to actually support that medium. Iron Man 2, yeah, it was a good serviceable summer action movie. It was kind of fun, but it failed to build on the promise of the first film. It failed to live up to the standards set by the first film and really, at some point, seemed like almost an extended commercial for Thor, Captain America, and the upcoming Avengers film is going to come out in a couple years. And while there's nothing wrong with that, I feel like they kind of shoehorned those aspects into the film. Moving on from there, you know, it was like, it was just really an awkward summer action season summer film season there was nothing out there that really piqued the public's interest we had one film that was massively successful toy story 3 but come on it had been 12 years since toy story had been on the screen those films have an insane amount of goodwill and fond memories towards them and so that film went over a billion dollars you know not not very surprisingly with the cost of tickets out there and the 3d tickets which i actually saw it in and did not think it enhanced the film in any way and it was a good film you know it did not do it a service to the first two films at all i don't necessarily think it was completely needed it didn't really build on any of the themes of the first two film or push these characters in a terribly new direction beyond that what else, what else have we seen this summer? Um, another movie that we went and saw was Date Night, which is kind of an odd movie. It's not a movie Dave and I would really typically... Ironically, we were on a date. We were on a, dates. A double date. It was at the cheap theater, and Dave completely hated it. I wasn't, didn't necessarily like it. But really the thing the whole movie was predicated on is the witty dialogue between Steve Carell and Tina Fey. And the problem with it is that in some cases for me, there's a few times where it worked and it was kind of funny, but a lot of it felt really forced and it felt really oh, it obvious felt what they were totally going forced. for. And the problem is Steve Carell is, I don't think Tina Fey is that funny. Uh, I don't know how Tina Fey got. I know she was on Saturday Night Live. Well, she was it, not funny on SNL. No, she wasn't funny on SNL. She hasn't done a. a I mean, she's in that. And Thirty watch, Rock, 30 and Rock. I've never seen that show I've because I don't. She, I, her comedy doesn't appeal to me. Maybe she appeals to women. I don't know. But the thing about Tina Fey, I will say, is like you watch the outtakes after the movie. 
when she's just being funny off the cuff, she's funny. Yeah, actually, she did make takes. me laugh. Yeah, but, but she is a terrible actress, and she is not able to take material and make it funny and make it live. I honestly thought at, in the beginning of this film that she was acting badly on purpose to try and make it funny. She yeah. was that bad. And Steve Carell, who I really enjoy in The Office, I think he's a very funny, very talented man. Yeah, he's really was funny. not much better. This was it was a cliched beat by beat summer date film, and but it was so terrible. Even our girlfriends had agreed that it was bad. It was not good. Uh, that's not true. My girlfriend liked it and her friend who came with us also liked it but the problem they liked it because I think they thought that, that she's an idiot the witty dialogue they, they think it worked you know for them and did but for me it's just the dialogue it was like this but is I, what we're going for oh man that was really off the cuff well that was off the wall it's, it's weird but to i mean see that's the thing it, it wasn't witty dialogue it was calculated dialogue it wasn't original nothing original in that film happened yeah you know it was beat by beat by beat it was three stooges and laurel and hardy bits you know so you know it definitely date night was definitely big thumbs down uh moving on to another film that failed to live up to its expectations is scott pilgrim versus the world uh, this is a film that garnered an insane amount of internet buzz it seemed like every internet journal out there was giving it the thumbs up and anointing it the next best thing months before it actually hit the theaters and ironically it was supposed to be the next wave of action movie kind of for people of our generation and younger and it was released the same weekend as the expendables and guess what it got expended it got sly expended himself all over scott pilgrim and it has actually fallen out of the top 10 it has not made any money and for a film that was another big summer tentpole action movie it disappeared well i think there's a couple problems with scott pilgrim versus the world number one i think people are getting burnt out on michael Sarah. he can only do one thing and it's the same thing over and over he can only be the awkward guy who you can only be an awkward teenager growing out of adolescence so many times and it worked in super bad but it's well let's go back it worked i I would make the argument that michael Sarah has never opened a film a michael Sarah film has never made a bunch of money the awkward teenage thing worked in the tv show arrest development when he was an awkward teenager yeah but super bad nobody saw super bad for michael Sarah. Well, no, they saw it for mclovin and for the fat seth rogan all right and name me another michael Sarah film that people have gone to see well there hasn't been that's paper heart nobody saw that so i think uh, what what did he make last summer Ten thousand bc or whatever with uh Jack Black, Black, directed by Harold Ramis, another film that bombed. There's like, I feel like there's this myth of Michael Sarah out there, like people will go to see his films and they don't. And they consistently do not. But he keeps getting work. Yeah, that's, uh, and on top of that, he's definitely not the kind of person you probably want to see starring in the role of an action well, it's kind of an action film. Scott Pilgrim is really supposed to be kind of like an everyman that fights for the heart of this woman he loves. But I, I really think that the studios didn't know exactly how to market this film because it's really, it's based on a comic book, an American comic book that draws heavily from the world of manga, the Japanese comic books. So it's definitely a niche within a niche of being a, a comic book niche within a niche. I just said niche three times. But, you know, who who's in the market to go see this film? You know, who's going to go see it in the theater? You know, granted, this felt the comic book Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and the other extended comic books have a ton of goodwill on the internet. That's because the internet is populated by nerds who have time to read this shit and then comment on it. People in the real world, I don't think they're necessarily paying attention to Scott Pilgrim. No, it seemed weird because it's a movie that was a story that was written for geeks but a movie that was geared towards teenagers and people in the early 20s. And so there's this weird kind of mismarketing. And I think that's what really kind of doomed it. I think it was marketed to the wrong crowd, but in the first place, maybe it shouldn't have been a movie because it was, well, it was marketed to the right crowd, but that crowd of late teens, early 20s didn't give a shit. 
Yeah, it seemed like it was kind of the perfect storm to sink this film, which otherwise I've heard really good things about. I heard I haven't seen it. I heard it's an excellent film. Seems like it's the perfect storm though of Michael Sarah backlash and not knowing who the fuck's gonna go see this movie ended up sinking Scott Pilgrim's Little World. Um, moving on from there, we already touched on The Expendables was actually become kind of a moderate summer hit. It's approaching 60, 65 million dollars in the box office. There's a lot of hype. I thought it was gonna do about as well as it's done. Yeah, I kind of expected this too. I didn't think it was gonna set the world on fire, but it is making money and there is sequel talk, so that's a good thing. Uh, moving on from there, the Angelina Jolie vehicle, Salt. We'll just uh, move on from that. What's the other movie we want to talk about? <laughs> The A-Team. The Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper, guy from District 13, guy from UFC, <laughs> vehicle, the rehashing, relaunch of the 80s TV show. I saw it in the cheap theater, and you know what? For $3, it was a perfectly serviceable movie. It was entertaining. I had a good time. I laughed, and I left. But for 10 to $12 for full-price ticket, no fucking way. They're insane. Yeah, I, Dave asked me to go see it with him, and I wouldn't even go see it for the cheap theater price. I mean, it's. I think it is another case of Hollywood kind of being bankrupt and looking for like bankrupt of original ideas and looking for something that's kind of a bankable franchise. But they are absolutely scraping the bottom of the '80s barrel if they're digging up the A team and trying to turn it into a big screen franchise. I mean, what are we gonna have next, Alf? They're already producing a Smurfs movie. Yeah, that's been in the works for a while. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, you know, once again, it's perfectly serviceable, and I would even probably go see some direct-to-video sequels, but, I mean, you know, you'll never get Liam Neeson or Bradley Cooper in a sequel to this thing that's direct-to-video. But once again, it's a case of, you know, underwhelming anticipation. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other movies that came out this summer that I, I mean, there is Inception, which I haven't seen yet, Dave. What'd you think of Inception? I thought Inception was good. I thought it was interesting. I think Chris Nolan is a very talented director. I don't quite understand why everybody was calling it the next big thing. People were comparing it to Blade Runner, and it's not a Blade Runner film, but it's absolutely entertaining. It's a fascinating premise and an interesting story that is just about carried out as well as it could be. And it's also something we touched on last week when we were talking about The Expendables. It's a smart action film, and it's a suspenseful action film. So, you know, that is definitely one that I would go see for full price. And actually, a movie that we're going to be talking about later on in this episode, Machete, is a movie that's kind of wrapping up the summer movie season. And it might be the movie that I'm looking forward to seeing the most. I mean, it is. It's kind of putting a bookend on the summer movie season. It's funny because it's a B movie that it's actually, it is an original film, even though they produced the Grindhouse trailer for it a couple years ago. I think the thought, my thoughts in the summer movie season was that it was a lot of filler, a lot of half-baked projects, and a lot of sequels and reboots and reimaginings. And I think people are finally, everything works in waves in Hollywood. And you've watched for the last 12 years or so we've been writing a superhero wave. And for the last five or six years, we've been riding this reboot wave, and it seems like the reboot wave is kind of petering out. It seems like maybe they're going to start putting some money up into original projects and original ideas. Another uh, remake, Robin Hood. <laughs> was Kevin Costner in that one, too? No. No, I remember um, Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. It was pretty well-reviewed. Absolutely, utterly bombed at the box office. Russell Crowe could not open that movie to save his life, which actually begs another question is that besides Will Smith, who in Hollywood can actually open a film anymore and get it to make any money just on name value alone? Nobody. Yeah, it's that's tough. I mean, there's some guys out there. I mean, they keep... It's a problem because like, it seems like the formula in Hollywood is changing. It's like that big name actor formula that they've been using forever just doesn't work. It's like certain guys, like they try Gerard Butler, but what has he really done other than 300 that's been a He hasn't done success. anything, but he's also been attached in the last year. He made three terrible movies. I think with the dissemination of media out there, 
with how easy it is to get a hold of a review or get a hold of a free version of the film or you know just read a review on the internet or a blog posting or whatever you can't get away of being a star in hollywood being a studio with releasing a shit film now because people know about it and they won't they are unwilling to plot down twelve dollars to go see these films much less fifteen dollars for a 3d movie unless it's transformers no i think they're in for a surprise next summer with transformers i think transformers is not going to make near as much as I, a sequel i think you're wrong well i think it'll make a lot of i money. think it'll make good amount it will make as much money yeah. i don't think as, as the first one transformers do i think it'll still be potentially with the other superhero movies coming out it might not be the top movie this i summer. think it, i think it's gonna get kind of lost in the shuffle a bit i think a lot of people realized how bad the second one is and there's not nearly as much anticipation for this third one it's hard to say people realize how bad the second one was when it did as well as it did though it made a lot of money which meant people kept going back and seeing it yeah but this time they're gonna lose those people that saw it once and they're only gonna have the people that saw it two or three times we'll see it'll be interesting i think transformers is definitely a niche movie though too so I think it'll be really successful. I'm so, I think it'll probably be my prediction for Transformers, which I will go see against all inner my, my body telling me, this, willing this is, me not this to This is something that may drive a wedge in the heart of this podcast. I, I refuse th- to see this movie. I refuse to participate in Michael Bay's suck fest that is Transformers. It's, uh, I just think it'll finish in the top three movies next summer. I, I think, think so too, easily. but I do think there's a chance that it's going to get lost in the shelf with Thor. And with the Green Lantern film, and with Captain America, maybe I, I really think I think it'll probably I don't know. I but think, I, I think the thing the, the, in the, the past and the nostalgia that makes Transformers special, it's not going to have that to itself next summer. In fact, I think Captain America is going to steal a lot of its thunder. Uh, I think it's a uh, it's tough because if they strike the right chords with the marketing for Captain America, that's going to be the yeah, biggest it, summer movie the next thing summer. About Transformers, Transformers is also it's it's a huge, but it's the third product time out. Yeah, but it's, but it doesn't matter. It's the third time it's come out. There's a lot of anticipation for the second film. Did not live up to that anticipation. It was panned across the board, oh, even though it made movie. a lot of money. It's, it's one it's one of the all time worst movies that made a shitload of money, but it still made a lot of money, which tells me there's people who people like dumb movies. There's a lot of but dumb movies. But here's the thing, are really people well. gonna be willing to go out there and throw down twelve bucks for a full price ticket? I really 15 think fifteen to they sixteen will. bucks for a three D ticket because it's being released in three D. Oh, I think that'll that'll help it actually. I think it'll have a huge first couple weeks and after word of mouth spreads it's gonna be done. I think that the three D will help all those people who were into the first two it'll give them another thing to make them want to go see the large robots again yeah anyway i get but getting back to the summer it was really was the summer that was not it just seems like there was not that string of breakaway hits that earned hollywood a bunch of money and this is typically when hollywood kind of goes into the black for the year it's these big studio tentpole films these franchise films that live on on dvd and now blu-ray and you know at kentucky fried chicken and at mcdonald's and this was just not that summer next we'd like to move on to the fall grand hill spectacular machete directed by robert rodriguez and based on the faux grindhouse trailer that played in between planet terror and death proof Machete stars Danny Trejo as the titular character, Machete, who is one Mexican you don't want to fuck with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Everyone knows Danny Trejo, or at least if you're a fan of horror movies or B-action movies. He is a character actor who is very recognizable. He is, he's he's one in, of that guy. He's yeah, one of those guys. You know you know the Mexican guy with the really bad acne scars? That's Danny Trejo. Um, he's been in What From Dust Till Dawn. He was just in Predators. 
Oh god, I mean, he's been in all... I, the funny thing is that I can't name any more films off the top of my head right now, but he has been all over the place. He was he was in an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, that also had Hulk Hogan. Oh my god, really? Yeah, he was a anti-gang teenage leader, and Hulk Hogan worked with him. And Chuck Norris did to prevent what? a young Mexican from joining the gang. Did Hulk Hogan drop the leg of the young Mexican? Yes. He drops the the leg on the Crips. No, Danny Trejo's basically been the go-to bad Mexican guy. Actually, I believe he was a Con Air too. Yeah, he's in- um, he's like I said, he's the, he's the go-to bad guy Mexican character. He's um, a character actor mostly because of his look and his stature. He's muscular, all tattooed up. And in 2005, uh, during the Grindhouse films, they did a series of faux trailers. One of them was Edgar Wright did Don't. Eli Roth had done Thanksgiving. Rob Zombie did Werewoman, Werewoman of the SS, and Robert Rodriguez directed the trailer Machete. And out of the four faux movie trailers, Machete was clearly the most popular. It was the most tongue-in-cheek. It touched on the most kind of grindhouse tropes, you know. Machete, he's got a special weapon. It's Machete's. And it kind of grew in popularity from there and spawned this film that's coming out this fall. Uh, well, one thing that's really interesting about Machete to me in the Grindhouse movies in general is I actually have a roommate who just for the very first time watched the other Grindhouse films, Death Proof and Planet Terror. And before he watched them, I kind of explained to him what the whole premise was in the theater. And he was like, yeah, okay, I see where this is coming from. And he was all about it, just the over-the-top nature. And that's really what excites me about Machete, knowing that it is going to have that Grindhouse feel, that Planet Terror-esque over-the-top feel that Robert Rodriguez included in Planet Terror. Um, another thing I'm excited to see is Steven Seagal as the main bad guy mainly because I think as a B movie it's it's gonna be a it's a B movie essentially because it's a grindhouse film but it, but it knows on. it's a B movie and it kind of it revels in being a B movie no exactly and I'm excited to see what they do with that character because I think Steven Seagal one thing I will give him is I think he knows the joke of Steven Seagal and I think he's willing to go along with that I think in this movie might be his best chance in his whole career to show people that you know he's, he doesn't it. take I himself that seriously yeah, exactly. He's like, I am Steven Seagal. I'm kind of a goof, you know. And when we talk about Machete, we got to talk about the cast beyond Danny Trejo. Cheech Marin plays another former federale, which is what Machete is. He's a former federale. Cheech Marin plays another former federale that has turned to the religion, has found religion, and is renounced killing. Michelle Rodriguez plays, I don't know, some hot chick that's going to help Danny Trejo kill a bunch of white folks. Same with Jessica Alba. Same with Jessica Alba. Uh, Jeff Fahey. Jeff Fahey of Lost and um, of Planet Terror also is in it, and he plays the go between for Senator De Niro that actually hires Machete. And Jeff Fahey, because I, I don't know by now, he's the main guy in Planet Terror, I, You right? know what? Um, no, Jeff Fahey is not the main guy in Planet Terror. Jeff Fahey runs the uh, chili restaurant that uh, they all end up in at Planet Terror. Gotcha, gotcha. But Jeff, Jeff Fahey is a character actor that's been around for about 20, 25 years. He really got a start in The Lawnmower Man in the late 80s. And he's really good in every anything he's in. He always brings it. And he's kind of aged to the point where, you know, he's he's got an interesting look too. He's very withered. Beyond that, Robert De Niro plays the senator in the film that is trying to outlaw the evil illegal immigrants. <laughs> um, which is kind of a coup for the film, and it also makes me think that Robert Rodriguez, who can be very funny when he wants to be, matron in a tour de force comedic performance. Beyond that, Lindsay Lohan's in it as a meth-addicted nun who apparently shows off her boobs. So, you know, that's pretty great. And Jessica Alba, did you already mention Jessica Alba? Yeah, she's kind of the uh, main love interest for Danny Trejo in the movie. Um, So she'll probably get the second most screen time. Um, That's kind of an interesting casting job, to be honest with you. Jessica Alba is kind of a, uh, she's kind of a wholesome girl, I guess you would say. And so to see her in a role, I guess the only other role she's been in would be the role in Sin City. Oh, she was in the Fantastic Four films. Well, I mean, she's she's had other movie roles, but I'm saying in terms of like the type of role like she's kind of wholesome doesn't really 
push the boundaries of taste too much. So well, it's, let's it's, be honest. Jessica Alba has not set the world on fire with her acting talents. No, she's easy hey. on the eyes. You know, it, it is kind of a coup for Robert Rodriguez to assemble a cast like this. I mean, he even got Robert De Niro to be in his homage to the B-movie, to the Grindhouse films. I, I think they're all aware. There's a lot of buzz for this movie. There has been ever since that trailer was created, and I think that is probably what allowed the momentum to get some of these actors involved with it, because I think people get it, and I think it's also going to be a pretty, you know, relatively big movie. It's going to be it's I think it's going to do very well. I think it's going to be entertaining as hell. Yeah. Um, I do think that, you know, I think you're right, that the buzz for two years ahead of time has really helped this movie out a lot. I also think that it was shot very quickly in the style of those grindhouse B films. Which will help it. And also, you know, we touched on this when we talked about Predators, even though uh, Robert Rodriguez didn't direct Predators, it was directed by Nimrod Antel, I believe is his name. Robert Rodriguez's directorial style is at its best when he's doing a B film. He cannot direct A films. He cannot direct serious action or drama. He has a hard time with real stories. With real stories and real characters. He does well with caricatures, kind of like with uh, spaghetti westerns like the Leone films, which, you know, those obvious influences he kind of wears on his sleeves. But I think this actually has potential to be his finest film. And I'm not his biggest fan. He's done a few things that have been pretty interesting but i'm super stoked for machete it looks like it's gonna be a lot of fun and i think one good thing about it is that danny trejo is a well-known character actor and i think it's gonna be cool to see him finally in a lead role i think he deserves it i think that he has a little niche in the uh oh in the movie market but he's a guy that's definitely you know it's funny because he's in a lot of movies just as a, like a side actor a lot of movies that i enjoy and so it'll be cool to see him bleeding he is perfect for he's the look he's he's perfect for the oh yeah well, he, he he looks like a killer that's why he's cast the character actor in so many things he looks like he's legitimately dangerous and it'll be interesting if he has this kind of late career renaissance as you know, maybe all of a sudden Danny Trejo's a leading man. I, I doubt that. All of a sudden that. he's doing romantic comedies with Catherine Heigl. I, I don't I think that's, I think he is such a niche actor. I think this is the only type of role you can put him in a lead as. It's something that was well, literally written. This movie was written for him to be the lead, it seems like. Oh, th- this is actually, like- it's funny that you mentioned that because this is clearly a vehicle for Danny Trejo yeah. and who would have ever thought they would have said that well that's that's the thing that's what's it's B-movie Robert Rodriguez is good at writing B-movies he obviously understands and knows who Danny Trejo is and knows how to use the guy and you oh he's imagine. used Danny Trejo in a bunch of things I think yeah. Danny Trejo showed up in Spy Kids I'm pretty sure he was in From Dusk Till Dawn that you mentioned yeah. and that was uh, Robert Rodriguez directed Quentin Tarantino produced I believe he might have also been in one of the Desperado films I mean he's I'm one of Robert Rodriguez's guys but beyond that you know just to touch on the Grindhouse trailers what are your thoughts on some of those other films? I know Eli Roth, who seems like every six months or so he pokes his head up and screams, look at me, look at me, I'm going to make a movie. He's been talking about making Thanksgiving for quite a while. Uh, I don't think it'll get made. Well, I, I, I don't think it would be that successful either if it got made. Funny thing about Eli Roth is that his claim to fame is Cabin Fever, which wears its Evil Dead influences on its sleeve, on its face, everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, it's a good splatter film, I guess. But it's by no stretch of the imagination original or that entertaining. No, Cabin Fever is just kind of, I don't know. It, yeah, it's just kind of an all right movie to me. And I honestly, what else has Eli Roth ever done? Off the top of your head, he, he did a Hostel. He did Hostel 1 and 2. Yeah, Hostel was, I guess, the first Hostel. Was well, the first Hostel had one. some buzz because it was supposed to be like torture porn. But really, six months after it was released, it had faded away. Nobody cared about it anymore. And Eli Roth, now he claims he's going to do a uh, giant monster film a la Cloverfield 
and then follow that up with production of Thanksgiving, which was his Grindhouse trailer, which was a pretty entertaining trailer. I liked it. It was fun. It was funny. It was yeah. funny. It They're pl- all good. All those trailers were funny. They're yeah. all really good. If you, you can find them all on uh, on YouTube. And I also recommend looking up Hobo with a Shotgun, which is yeah, another that- <laughs> upcoming Grindhouse which, film that's starring Rutger Hauer yeah, as the, the hobo. Thing is Dave and I went and saw Silent Night, Deadly Night last uh, around Christmas time. And the we David showed me the trailer for Hobo with a Shotgun beforehand, just as like, haha, check this out. This is really funny. It'd be you know kind of interesting if they actually made this and then lo and behold it was like a grindhouse themed night the hobo shotgun trailer was there for silent night deadly night too so uh, it's obviously a well-known trailer in the grindhouse it it won a contest when this uh when the grindhouse films came out i won a contest and that's why it's so well known you can find it on youtube if you haven't seen it look it up it's hilarious hobo with a shotgun uh, steering the conversation back towards Eli Roth, though, yeah, I don't get why this guy, why anybody reports on the things this guy says. He's done two films that I can count, not counting the direct-to-video sequel to Cabin Fever, not counting <laughs> Hostel 2. Neither one were terribly original. Yeah, he was the Bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards, but I really just feel like he's Quentin Tarantino's little buddy. Is yeah. why he got in that part. He wasn't good. He didn't set the screen on fire, and he was only really on screen for 15 minutes. No, I agree with you. There's a lot of hype around him actually being an Inglorious Bastards, and I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say he was bad, but he also didn't, you know, he didn't stand out. He just kind of played a role, and that was that. I don't think that, but it is true. It just seems like he's just kind of a name. Well, see, it seems it's, like he's um a scenester down there. And he's, a, I mean, he's a guy that knows, he knows all about the horror. right people. He knows the right people, and he is very knowledgeable about horror films, particularly. But he isn't. It doesn't seem like that knowledge necessarily translates Guess who to making else is good really films. Knowledgeable about horror movies, Who's Rob that? Zombie, and yeah. pretty much everything he's done has been okay at best. Uh, I think that like the first two movies, House, House of a Thousand, Thousand Corpses, Corpses, had its moments, but really it was an hour and a half homage to every to late seventies, early eighties slasher. He likes, but I mean, it was all right. It was a hor- all horror movies are yeah, in one way I mean, or another borrowing from other. Horror so many movies, horror movies are so derivative. You very rarely get an original horror film. Yeah, and then um, what's oh god, what's the name of the sequel to that? Mm, the Devil's Rejects. The Devil's Rejects. And actually, that was actually a superior film to the first one. I think one, that was better too and I think that was actually a, a, that's his best movie and that's actually to me a good almost kind of slightly original horror movie. You know? well, it's not really he, even a horror movie. What it's, he did and it's so funny about Rob Zombie because Rob Zombie has his actors too that he uses over and over again and recycles. <laughs> his wife. <laughs> oh, oh god don't get me started on Sherry Moon Zombie. She is absolutely atrocious in everything he puts her in and he su- she sucks the life and the interest right out of any film as yeah. soon as she steps on screen because you know it's his wife and you know she has zero, zero talent. talent. Maybe that's what he's going Her for. Her thimble full of talent got knocked over in the dressing room. Yeah, uh, maybe and soaked up that, by though, a big it, pile of coke. It adds to that B quality of his movies. Maybe he's like, you know, what? my wife's a terrible actress. She can make this. Suck I have a theory. The I, have, right I have a theory about Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. Was that he purposefully made it so bad that nobody would ever try and remake a Halloween again? I, I and that he that. didn't kill I it really... the first time. He came back for the second time, stuck a horse in that movie, and called it good. Yeah, I, I think that what he did, I think he probably really believed in it. I think, like, in the interviews leading up to the uh, first Halloween, you know, the, the first remake he did, I guess, the first one, he said he didn't feel like Michael Myers was a well-explained character. You didn't know why he was doing what he was doing, which was, as yes, anyone, everyone knows, it's beside the point. Everyone knows Michael Myers is evil incarnate, that that is what Thank he you. is. Look, John Carpenter is on record saying that Michael Myers is not a person. He's evil. He was in the original draft of the script. 
He was referred to as the shape, not even Michael Myers. You know, he's evil incarnate. You don't give evil incarnate a backstory. That's what makes Halloween so creepy. Well, is that that's what makes he just it, yeah. keeps coming back. He's like the Undertaker in professional <laughs> wrestling. It's like you just can't keep him down. And, you know, that original, that great classic film, not even just a horror film, just a great classic film, launched the entire slasher genre into the mainstream. You know, yeah. even though a lot of people argue that the original Black Christmas, which came out a couple of years beforehand, that John Carpenter borrowed a lot from that film. And I see similarities. I mean, okay, they're holiday themed, but really the character Michael Myers is much more of the focal point of Halloween than the yeah. killer is in Black Christmas. And my, I guess what I was getting at with but that Black is Black Christmas that is much funnier. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about those Halloween remakes and Rob Zombie is that he is known for being this horror movie buff. And the thing that's disappointing about the Halloween remakes is that he completely missed the point of the exactly. Halloween movie. So why did he? Why didn't he just make his own original slasher flick? Because I think that would have probably been better than him remaking the Halloween movies. That it it would have been more interesting more. than him rehashing those films. And I think people would have been more open to the ideas that he put in the new Halloween film. Yeah, because he just transplanted them into an original piece. Because yeah. then you're you're not dealing with the baggage and all the horror movie fandom for Michael Myers. And let's be honest, how many great Halloween films have there been? There's been one. One, and then there's been eight or nine warmed over sequels that are, you know, they're entertaining because it's Michael Myers, but Rob Zombie should have done his own thing. But it's just funny to watch this little talent pool of these grindhouse directors kind of swimmer and swammer their way around the kiddie pool and kind of trying to catch up to a guy like Quentin Tarantino, who, if you go back and watch Death Proof, that movie, when I saw him originally, I thought Planetaria was far superior to Death Proof, and I was shocked, but Death Proof gets better with repeat viewings, and that's pretty much the way it is with every Tarantino film. Yeah, I like Death Proof more than Planetary as well. I And you know who gives a tour de force performance in that film? Oh, Kurt Russell's yes, amazing. Yes, he does. Death That's Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike. <laughs> anyway, so getting back to Machete, we are probably going to go see it this week. It comes out uh, Friday, and it's going to be a subject of our next review, but I am uh, very excited for this film. I think it's, it has a lot of potential to be extremely entertaining. Next up, we're going to discuss the AMC TV show Mad Men. It's a show Dave gave me for my homework assignment back, I believe, on the second episode. And basically, it's a period piece that takes place in the early 1960s surrounding an advertising agency. And the main character's name is Don Draper. Basically, whoa, whoa, whoa. He is the Sterling Cooper Advertising Agency. The Sterling, I'm sorry, the Sterling Cooper Advertising Agency, which it eventually evolves into the Sterling Cooper Draper Price Advertising Agency during the fourth season. At that time, Neither Dave or I were fully caught up on the show, but now we are caught up to where it's currently at. It's airing the fourth season right now. And Dave introduced me to the show, so I'd like to kick it over him, see what he thinks about what the developments that have happened up through the fourth season. Um, to watch the arc of the character of Don Draper is kind of fascinating because he's just so deeply flawed. And I'm sure I said this during our second episode. He's so deeply flawed, but you still root for Don, you know? And through his various trials and tribulations, and as Don kind of trolls the uh, ocean, of Poon Tang that has been set out before him like a shark, you root for Don. The latest developments in season four is that Don has been divorced from his wife, Betty, and they're... In other words, set free. He's been let off the leash. He's been unleashed. And I was... After I saw the end of season three and I saw that Betty had basically threw down an ultimatum for a divorce and it was going to happen, part of me was really excited because finally we're going to see Don Draper in all his glory smoking and drinking and fucking Not his so way through the fast. 60s. 
Not so fast. Season four, the show has done a U-turn. Yeah, that's actually what to me makes the show great is that at the end of season three, Don's life kind of fell apart. And at that same time, the old advertising agency kind of broke down and broke off from a larger group that had bought them. And so at the same time, you have Don's personal life falling apart with the divorce and the wife gets the kids and he's basically starting over professionally. So you have these. But, kind it, of but it seemed there. like Don had a bright future. It seemed like, you know, the way it's presented in the show, it's almost like his wife, Betsy, Bets, had held him back. Elizabeth is her name. Like, she had held him back. And he wanted to be free from that. And he wanted to be free from the kids. And he had left. He had taken Roger Sterling and uh, Burt Cooper, the two money men, and uh, I can forget the first name of the guy, Price. And they had started a new ad agency because their old agency had been sold and they didn't want to be part of a massive corporate cog. And you think that it's a, it's a new dawn for Don Draper. Like, the sun is rising and it's not. Don is actually developing a severe drinking problem. No, that's actually what I was going to get at, is at the end of the fourth, or the third season, you um, what you have is, it looks like it's going to lead into a brighter future for Don, but the fourth season, it's not so much. He's having a hard time. His, I mean, he's still the Don Draper who can get laid, but he's drinking a lot more. The agency they started is struggling, which you he's, didn't really expect. The, his success is not as easy. It's not as second nature for him. He's, he's Don Draper's still getting laid, but it's almost like he's actually forcing himself on some girls. His successes are fewer and further between. He's not hes not the character he was in the previous three seasons. It's like he's lost a bit of confidence. No, that's exactly what it is. It's like he's lost confidence and it's out of the mistakes he's made in the past, which is good. I'm, I'm glad that the writers of the show didn't just write off everything that's happened in the series up to that point. It's basically you can see all the effects of the decisions he's made and all the things you found out about Don Draper's personal life and that it has taken a toll on him mentally. And his drinking and his womanizing and his less professional success that he's experienced in the show is evidenced by that and it's good to see that because coming out of the third season you just thought it was going to be unleashed on Draper but I mean, I mean think about like a lion that gets loose in the zoo and just starts eating small children you'd think that that'd be Don Draper in the dating pool but it's not he's actually kind of pathetic and this is a character that you know from a chauvinistic standpoint has been built up over the first three years of the series to be everything I think most guys kind of want to be like they're Dr. Jekyll the Mr. Hyde side that guys want to be kind of like this suave successful businessman and he's not well it shows that he needed that foundation to kind of it kept him grounded his family and Betty and when he is cut free he's kind of lost he doesn't know what to do with himself he doesn't go home every night to his family or I guess he, he goes go home to his little shitbox apartment yeah he goes to his little crappy apartment he, he sees his kids every now and then and when he sees them he doesn't know what to do with them I mean it's it's awkward but and, and the I, cool thing I will say about that is it is the very beginning of that period of time where families did start splitting up and that is one of the things that's really cool it's common and it's not the only relationship in the show that, that goes through that as well and so I mean you see that kind of the American uh, cliche the, the of the divorce of the traditional split up American family. family and that's what's starting to happen that's what's another thing that's cool about Mad Men is you see these developments that happen culturally in America and they're aligning it well with the time period yeah well the easy thing for the show to have, to have done would have been to have had Don just unleash himself and just become basically James Bond at an ad agency that's the easy thing to do they didn't and when I found myself watching the first couple of episodes of season four it's uncomfortable to see don in this position because no, you're exactly so used to him being successful but i will say the one thing about this show is that even though don is kind of awkward with his kids and doesn't quite know how to deal with him he has consistently been the good parent while betsy has been the bad one it's i mean to some extent don has been gone at times that's one flaw he has he's, he's been distanced but he's always warm with his kids and he always knows 
he has a proper temperament. It's true, but then you also got Betty, though, who, on the other hand, is kind of stuck at home with kids and is constantly surrounded with them. And you have the situation where it's basically one person raising two and then three kids, and you can see how that can that can mentally wear on her and how the housewives of that time had kind of like... Well, I, 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 can, I can definitely see herself. that. And if you go back and you watch season three and you watch the episode when they go to Rome, when Betsy's kind of living out this fantasy existence that she wanted to be this kind of jet-setting, beautiful woman in these fabulous cities She's around really the world... Happy. She's actually happy, you know, but as soon as she gets home, her attitude changes and she's miserable again, which just kind of goes to show that Betsy hates her life. And she hates being this housewife, that she kind of hates her kids the way she treats her daughter. She kind of resents them because they're kind of like the ultimate representative of what what her life has turned into. Well, I mean, come on, those are the the living embodiment of her life with Don and her being a housewife. And then another thing that's interesting about Betty is that the thing is, even though she does kind of turn into a biatch towards the end of season three and into season four, the person responsible really for the destruction of their marriage directly in terms of actions is Don, but you still find yourself... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying that Betsy gallivanting around town with that lawyer and Don comes home drunk and he has the nerve to call her a whore? Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly. But the Look. funny thing is you still are on Don's side through the whole thing as Betty just... Basically what she does, she turns into a bitch, but she's also justified in all the things she's thinking and all the things she's doing. And it's kind of an interesting way they develop that character. Well, I, I wouldn't say she's completely justified in the way she treats her kids. The way she treats Don. Don, you know, Don. I'm talking yeah, about Don, Everything Don, Don gets from Betts, he's kind of earned. Yeah, and... The, uh, he has a kind of earned. He's flat fucking earned. You, you kind of... And the thing is, like, as, a, as the early part of the show, you, you like Betty. She's kind of cute and she's that wife that kind of supports her husband, no questions asked, but as the show develops, she kind of starts to question Don and she finds out that he's not who he says he is and these things come up that she really can't forgive him for she kind of turns into a bitch and rather than turning on don like you should for being the piece of shit that he is you turn on betty and that's just you know another testament to the way they write the show well, and joe ham's acting and pertain john don draper because he does an excellent job with oh that. yeah he's um i believe he's won best actor in a drama two years in a row he actually um, has lost. He's lost. He's lost. He's he's lost every year. He's been the the show has won best drama three years in a row, but he keeps losing to the guy from Breaking Bad. Are you kidding? Did, I know. I mean, I, did, a, did Don Draper sleep with the uh, Emmy Award staff? I think did he Don Draper them? got drunk and slapped a few too many asses on the voting panel. <laughs> hey, sweet cheeks. <laughs> Vote for Don. Um, it, it is a testament to the show. And I haven't seen Breaking Bad, so I can't say, you know, if he deserves yeah, I mean, one or not. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, the guy yeah, yeah. Gets I mean I've heard saying. really good things about yeah. it from people that I really value their opinion. You know, it, it is. It's so interesting because Don is any other person that played this character in any other light. He's a piece of shit. But you do root for him. And you want him to be the good dad. You want him to be a good guy. Yeah, Johan make, makes him warm and almost relatable. Charming. 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 Yeah, charming. charming is the word. He makes he, him charming. He charms dudes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he does. Johan reaches out and charms the, the guys through the TV screen. And Well, I mean, I was thinking more along the lines of the character of in the advertising agency. He charms guys. That's how he gets them to buy into their company. That's how he sells. Well, he, he's a very charismatic character. Yeah, and I mean, that's essentially what he's doing, though, is charming the guys he's getting him to buy into what he's selling them and uh those two things kind of interrelate is the way he charms the women and charms the dudes so it's a general charismatic part of his personality that carries over another character i'd like to talk about is pete campbell he's probably one of the you know three or four main characters in the show uh last time we talked i, I want to talk about roger sterling roger, so we'll who just to... about slapped a jab slapped when the they jab. came into the ad agency <laughs> Yeah, Roger. Okay, we'll, we'll get back to Pete Campbell in a second. All right, but. yeah, we're, we're going off a tangent. Roger Ironhide Sterling. <laughs> Honda wanted uh, Sterling, Cooper, Draper, and Price to uh, produce advertising for their... Motorcycles. Vespa, actually. It's a motorcycle or a Vespa type thing. Yeah. 
Scooter. Scooter. You know, at this point in the show, this is season four, so at this point in the show, uh, Sterling Cooper, Draper, Price, they're hurting for money. The only account they really have is Lucky Strikes, and if you go back and watch season three, the bisexual rich son of the man that founded Lucky Strikes is basically he's their count and he's a huge douchebag. Yeah, and they have to kind of cater to the guy too. I mean, there's this another thing that happens in season four regarding the Lucky Strike account where they have to have they have to upgrade their Christmas party because this guy is coming and he basically Bullies. takes full advantage of everyone that's there, including Roger Sterling, but they have to put up with uh, well, it because if they lose uh, him. Especially Roger Sterling. Because he has a relationship because Sterling's dad is the one that landed Lucky Strike in the first place and so there's that family connection. But more than that, it seems like um what's the name from lucky strikes the big bully the jerk the guy captain the, jerk yeah um it seems like he knows he has the new ad agency over a barrel well and yeah he's and using it to his advantage to get a kick no totally and the, he's also the guy responsible for getting poor old sal fired but that's, that's what i that's what i said the three. bisexual rich son of the founder of lucky strikes who yeah. came on to poor sal poor conflicted sal <laughs> in the editing room could didn't know what to do and he ended up getting fired because of it poor sal getting hand jobs on field trips with don draper not from don they had different rooms from the bellboy <laughs> Good god can you imagine don and sal an intimate moment i can't i don't that. want to but that was, it gives new meaning to the term full service bellboy yeah we we digress from the main point we, Dave get, was talking about there's there's an episode though because roger sterling served in the army in world war ii and basically he has a huge problem with working with honda because it's a japanese company and he's holding on to all these old grudges he has from the war and but the, there's this conflict because they desperately need the business and everyone is for it but him but because he's the one he's one of the original people he's sterling cooper it's there's this weird uh give and take during the episode there's a weird dynamic because he is one of the money men he's not as big a money man as burt cooper but roger sterling does have the money and he's basically he's the guy that actually charms most of the customers he's the charming face of sterling cooper he's the personable one he's the one that gets to know them on a more personal in fact he even says to don that don doesn't value relationships but roger sterling does and he basically just horribly insults the uh, representatives of honda but much to the chagrin and dismay of don pete and burt cooper yeah, Pete, this is actually an account in the show that Pete brings in. And like I said, they desperately need it. And so when basically Sterling pops and they try to hide the actual meeting with them from Sterling, but then he finds out about it. And he drunkenly, sh- drunkenly stumbles his way into the meeting and manages to disrespect the Japanese owners of Honda in as many ways as possible. I like to go back to the Pete Campbell. One thing that I talked about when we did the initial review, when Dave gave it for uh, a homework assignment to me, was how much I didn't like the character of Pete Campbell. Actually, in my own words, I quote called him schmarmy. I don't know what schmarmy means, but that's all the best way I could describe him. I, I um, think you. I think it's smarmy. Smarmy. <laughs> smarmy. I don't even know what schmarmy is. <laughs> that's what Pete Campbell is. But anyways, I've actually warmed up to Pete Campbell. You kind of... Uh, he kind of grows on you. It's kind of weird because he is a guy that you probably, you, you kind of hate him at first, but he kind of becomes a good soldier, so to speak. He's and, very, in the beginning, he comes off as very wooden. And I don't think his, that character, that aspect of his character doesn't change as the show goes on. He's still, the way he carries himself is kind of wooden, kind of unemotional, kind of self-serving, but you're right. He grows on you as a character. And when Pete does not get the promotion at Sterling Cooper, then you kind of feel for him. You know, then yeah. he, he's kind of humanized. He stops going into work. And that's that point in time when you'd be like, oh, I didn't get the promotion and this is what I wanted to do. 
you know, you connect with Pete. And, you know, for me, he will always be the Wesley Crusher of the show, mostly just because it looks. He's not as annoying as the character Wesley, Wesley Crusher, but if they were ever to reimagine Next Gen, I want to cast whatever his name is as young <laughs> young Crusher. But uh, Pete Campbell is definitely a character that grows on you, and he seems like he's going to be successful in the future, but he doesn't have the character flaws that Don has that kind of holds Don back. Well, he kind of does in some way. Well, he's he's, he's got different he's got different character he's flaws. He's not as arrogant as Don is. Don is kind of set in his ways, and Don is also idealistic. But Pete has a sense of entitlement that he, Don doesn't. He have. does, and he's also I think he'd be more willing to. Um, he's more he's less scrupulous to be successful. He has less scruples than Don. Like Don at least has some scruples. Pete is willing to exploit his father-in-law. Exactly, he's willing to, get to basically ahead. exploit and do whatever it takes to be successful. Whereas Don does have some sort of honor, some, and some, some sort some of, kind of code ethics guiding that what he, he does. Follows he won't do certain things because he just doesn't think it's right. I mean, but then again, there's the smoldering subplot of Peggy and Pete Campbell's love child. Yeah. <laughs> that if you see the look on Peggy's face during season four when she finds out that Pete and his wife are pregnant, you know, something something's happening there. You know, and it's kind of, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with this love child because it's been around since season one when Peggy was completely oblivious to her pregnancy. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it was a different time. I can't imagine being that much different. I guess, you know, you figure if you've missed your period for seven, eight, maybe even nine months, you would figure something was up. But yeah, she's, maybe she was a juggalo. Not in the world of Mad Men. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in regards to Mad Men at this point? Uh, well, I mean, the thing about Mad Men is that we can go back to it and go back to it and go back to it. I mean, we can discuss Burt Cooper, who's kind of the only guy left from the founding group of uh, Sterling Cooper. But no, I mean, once again, just an excellent show. Season four has brought something out different in me in that it's hard to watch because Don is not as self-assured as he was before. But hands down, in my opinion, the best show on TV. If you're not watching it, you should be. Yeah, Dave actually took down his giant poster of Don Draper because he's just not the same Don he used to be. I, I, I couldn't look. Bed. I couldn't look at it on my bedroom wall. I just look. He, he had a, a different look in his eye this year. I don't even think he's drinking old fashions anymore. Wait till he gets that blonde chick though. Once he once he beds the blonde because lady, Don, he's been going after. Because Don's kind of like a big game hunter right now, and he knows what he wants. Yep, and he can't get it yet, but he's gonna get her when he does. Don's gonna be back on his game. I don't know. It's gonna. I actually. I honestly think. Don will not be back on his game until he gets his family back. But yeah. the question is, will he ever get his family back? Uh, well, the way they write the show, I would doubt. I doubt it, I too. Could, well, I could see the other way. That's what's good about it. You don't know. Like, yeah. like you would think probably not because they like to take it in darker directions but that would make you expect but there's something to, to be it. said for the happy ending and i mean i think with so much tv out there that tends to go for the darker ending and i will talk about battlestar galactic because that had kind of a bleak ending even though there's a ray of hope you know i think if Mad Men were to go in that direction and kind of give Don Draper a happy ending, I think that would actually be fitting for the series. It'd be it'd be interesting if they give him his family back, because then it'd be like, under what circumstances does he actually get the family back? You yeah, know? I mean, I but mean, I mean, even if he got his family back, it's not like Bets would ever trust him again. They've already established. That's that. the whole point. Like that's why I could see him not getting his family back. Because I think that that I'm just waiting for Bets is... to start paying Don rent. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, that that relationship does seem to be damaged beyond. Uh, it's that relationship is broken. Yeah, and, and Bets herself is kind of broken. And actually, she's remarried. In the sh- in, uh, between seasons three and four, she remarried the lawyer that she had actually been whorish with at the she end had, of season three. She had kissed behind. She Don's had been back. making out with behind Don Draper's back. After years of Don banging women, she makes out with the guy. How dare she? Um, well, Don hit the nail on the head when he drunkenly stumbled into her room and called her a whore. I uh, 
Uh, my last thought on the Mad Men segment here is that when you have a show that wins a best drama Emmy three years in a row, a lot of times the Emmys seem to be, Dave mentioned this beforehand, and I totally agree with him, it is with any major awards. It's all based on popularity, but Mad Men is one of the few things where it lines up and actually also deserves it. January Jones's dress at the Emmys was god-awful, but the show definitely deserves to win. I, I, I didn't see that dress. Would you care to comment on the fashion of the Emmys? The fashion, the only thing I could comment... Well, actually, there's two things I can comment oh. on. <laughs> Number one, January Jones's dress was was awful it was this blue thing and it had like giant hoops and it was a flowing kind of gown so when they all the whole ensemble cast went up on stage as they won the best drama award she kind of awkwardly stumbles around and her and Joham kind of get put off to the side because her dress is so huge it takes up a large portion of the stage number two joan i don't know her real name but her goddamn boobs are so big christina Hendricks. and i'm not even saying this to be a chauvinistic dude yes, they were literally erupting from the dress she was wearing it was <laughs> it was like two giant tits standing on the emmy stage joan's great mounds one thing i have noticed about joan is that it seems like her breasts stop where her neck ends it's christina Hendricks, the actress that portrays joan in the show she's um she's a beautiful woman she's an original beauty kind of um not your traditional Lots of curves a very curvy woman very sensual form but yes aaron is right her breasts are enormous so that wraps up another episode of apocalypse now join us in about two and a half weeks when we review hurley the new weezer album we review machete and we bring back we dig up the john ritter memorial Three's company news bit segment. Also, don't forget to uh, find us on Facebook and become a fan of the page. And if you have any requests, anything you'd like Dave and I to talk about, you can get a hold of us at apodclipsnow at hotmail.com. So once again, for Apodclipsnow, I'm Dave. This is Aaron. Have a good week. See you next time.